Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 184, and I appreciate you tuning in. I had a big question on last week's episode, and if you didn't listen to it, the question is, would you be okay, and would you still tune in if I renamed the title of the podcast, Intentional Growth? It freaks me out to even talk about this because after three and a half years, you have been tried and true. I have hundreds of thousands of downloads and thousands that tune in every single episode, and it freaks me out that I might do something that's going to upset all of my loyal followers. So if you have any thoughts, reach out to me on my LinkedIn, my email, which is rtansom at arcona.com. Yeah, honestly, give me a call at 612-720-6530. I want to know if it feels okay to you because one thing that I've learned after three and a half years of doing this podcast and all of the education I've uh, consumed, honestly, since we sold the business, the whole mission was to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold. And if there's one takeaway I had from five and a half years of thousands of meetings and hundreds of interviews and all these podcast interviews is that if we would have known how all of this stuff works, how to grow a valuable business, what all the different exit options are, and then how we can reverse back into what's important to us so that way we create as many options as possible and then we have the ability to be nimble as the world changes, but we can intentionally go towards the outcome that we want, whether that's a passive owner and you're passing the business back on to your kids or whether that's growing and selling to a third party, whether that's selling to your employees, each one of those impact your timing, how much your company's worth, your role. There's so many variables. And if you just, if I just would have understood that stuff, we would have been able to engineer the path that we wanted to intentionally. So I think that the topics that we talk about, the people that come on the show, the big word and the theme that comes out is intentional. And it's all based on growth. If we would have grown in the direction that we wanted to, we would have gotten what we wanted instead of having things happen to us. So I really want to know your feedback. Reach out to me. Your voice is important to me because I want to keep having people on the show that are helping you understand how to grow the value of your company and how to understand the different options that might eventually happen to you so you can get what you want. So today's episode is for you. If you're looking to acquire a company sometime in the near future and you're wondering what am I going to do in due diligence and then how am I going to integrate that company into my current culture? And it's also for you if you're looking to sell to a third party at some point and you want to know what is due diligence going to look like and then what are they going to do to my company, my people, my systems post-closing and then what should I expect? And our guest today has a ton of experience in this specific topic because Kisan Patel, who is a podcaster, an author, and an entrepreneur, is on the show. He started his career as an investment banker, went through 34 plus acquisitions that valued up to $350 million, and he realized in his experience how insanely inadequate the processes were because M&A is one of the most complicated projects you could possibly imagine. Think about it. It's not just software. You're integrating 
tons of systems, tons of people, and you then have to continue to grow efficiently afterwards. What Keysan experienced was the sheer inefficiencies that was happening with something that was one of the most important transactions for the buyer and the seller. He said that, you know, the big, huge deals he was working on were still managed on spreadsheets with dozens of people trying to communicate with each other to make sure that things are getting validated to get the deal closed. If you think about every single different department lead on the buyer and on the seller, then you have both sides, CPAs, attorneys, investment bankers. I mean, it can be insane how many people get involved and they're all trying to validate is this worth it? Is it not worth it? Are we getting our price uh, pushed down or are we going to be overpaying? What are the surprises? All of those things rely rely on all the underworkings of both companies, yet we're managing this stuff on spreadsheets. So Keysan decided to take the agile project management system from software and tech and apply it to M&A. He started his company called Deal Room, which is an M&A project management system. He also wrote the book called Agile M&A. He's got his podcast called M&A Science. And his whole goal is to take the agile approach to project management that was originally developed to address the workflow issues in the software development industry. Agile is extremely beneficial when you have core values and you have a specific outcome that you're trying to march towards and you know that things are going to be unpredictable, you're going to need instant communication, and you're going to need to focus on fast and rapid implementation. So Key sounds on the show to explain how this works in M&A. And this is important because one of my big takeaways over the last five and a half years is that everybody is highly compensated on the transaction getting done and closed, but then post-closing, it's really just left up to the buyer to figure it all out. And the buyers may or may not be sophisticated in doing this. A lot of the mid-market privately held companies have only done a handful. There's a lot of first-time private equity firms out there that haven't done integration. So I think it's your job as the seller to understand this. And as a buyer, if you want to make that acquisition worth it and the big leverage that you might be taking out or the equity that you're putting in and you want to return on that, listen in and figure out how to do this the right way. And by the way, if it's done the right way, I truly believe that the human part of this can actually be focused on. And then we can talk about how to integrate cultures. So with that being said, I really hope you learn a lot about integration on the pre and post closing of the world of M&A with Kisan Patel. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Good morning, Kisan. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Ryan. How about yourself? Doing good. Um, I'm pumped to have you on the show, uh, especially because we got introduced by a good friend, Dan Golden. So even though you and I are professionals and we are going to talk about some very sophisticated, complicated stuff, we both know that we have a little bit of uh, two-year-olds in us because of (laughs) the mutual friend that introduced us and his uh, sense of humor. It's probably the best way to get introduced. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so we're going to talk about some cool stuff, but you know, Dan, so we'll save uh, some of those shenanigans for offline. (laughs) So, uh, which I think it's going to set the stage, I think for the the episode, Kisa, because, you know, you know, I talk about uh, mergers and acquisitions and value growth and all this stuff with businesses all day long. And so do you, but I think what I enjoyed about our conversation when we first met was, we don't have to make it that complicated. And you just came out with a book explaining how to take something that's super complicated and where a lot of things can go wrong and then broken it down into a framework that makes sense. So I think the listeners are going to enjoy uh, this topic as we kind of get into it. But you know, maybe for the listeners that are not familiar with you, your background, give us an under, you know, a little bit of a cliff note version of where did you come from? How did you get into the world of M&A? And then how, what are you doing now? And what is the premise of your book? And then we'll take some time unpacking it. Sure. So my, my background, I ran a boutique M&A advisory practice here in Chicago for 10 years. I primarily worked on hotels and small financial institutions on both the buy and sell side. And it was in that experience where I got exposed to a lot of the inefficiencies in the M&A process and had to endure the, the recession around 2007 and uh, mulled through that, but took that as the time to get involved in the technology space. And uh, around 2012, 
uh, in that period, I saw this trend where all these different industries were adopting project management tools, the construction space, education, and started a company in 2012 called Deal Room with the pretty simple thesis that the billion dollar M&A deals wouldn't be managed in Excel forever. So that <laughs> business started. And uh, in that experience is when I started working with a variety of different investment banks and corporate development teams and realized that there is no standardized or evidence-based approach to completing M&A deals. Everybody has their own unique way of doing deals. And oftentimes, it's nothing that's really proven, which got me thinking about what are these best practices that companies can be utilizing. And also, I saw things that our software engineers would use when they use their project management techniques, their uh, agile approaches in developing software that I thought would help overcome some of the same challenges in the M&A space. So it was around three years ago where I started blogging about that. And then uh, more recently, uh, about a year or so ago, I had interviews with some large tech companies like Google and Atlassian, where they expressed the details and how they were actually using agile techniques in their M&A process that stemmed from their engineering culture with great success. And that gave me the validation to really start putting this stuff together into a framework and published a book out of it to hopefully help other companies be able to evolve their M&A process. I love it. So um, what I think we should do, um, and I'm obviously I'm wide open to, uh, to ebb and flow in the conversation, but I think let's, let's tell a couple stories on like the problem, right? So the problem that you're solving, and then we can talk about your process and we can talk about some stories and then what agile is, uh, and then how you've been using it to integrate. But like, maybe I'll just start off with what, like one of my stories. And then a couple of the ones that I've seen recently, Keystone is that, you know, yeah, I actually, uh, in one of my certifications that I got, this, uh, um, financier was explaining that a lot of, you know, the whole point of buying a company from a buyer's perspective is to get a rate of return, period, right? I mean, like obviously there's strategic reasons and then there's all these different things, but the point of taking money and paying for an asset is to get a rate of return. And what happens is he, the, the stat that I heard, and I'm curious if this is in your book or in, your, uh, in any of your data, is that most acquisitions do not get a return above their cost of capital for essentially borrowing <laughs> or any other investment because it, it flops because of the integration, which is some of the stuff that you're talking about. And I think about when we sold, we had 30 people that showed up and like we had no phones. There was no org chart. I mean, there was like 30 highly paid people just walking around <laughs> going, what do we, what should we do? And like I, that, that actually ended up going fairly well because it was the same industry, same systems. And there was a lot of you know, it, it, it didn't take as long to get um, integrated as uh, I think some other stories where I hear story after story, Kisan, of these private equity firms these days where you have a bunch of Wall Street guys or gals who have this awesome investment thesis of, I'm going to roll up X industry across the US. I mean, my God, I've heard that story so many times. And then they, I, I've heard this one recently where this, this PE firm bought 17 companies in like 20 months. You know, so you have thousands of employees and the thing's a total disaster because like, I'm like, how do you integrate that many ERP systems or payroll systems, let alone if all the systems went fine? How, can you imagine integrating like 18 cultures? Yeah. <laughs> so like, so the, then therefore the financial reward doesn't go there too. So I, I hopefully maybe that sets some, uh, some foundation to, Explain like when you when you said that you know, when you were working in the investment banking space of the buy and sell side of the, and you saw the inefficiencies, what are some of the things that were blaringly obvious that I mean you've been working on this now for over ten years right so like what what were some of the things that you saw that were like blaringly obvious? Well, we're talking about a lot of different angles here, which is great. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's the buy side on the private equity, and on the banking side, oftentimes you're representing sellers, and there's also a level of inefficiencies there. And to dive in a little deeper in that area, it's when you're managing the sell side process, what happens is, is you're working with a company that's selling their management team and you're entertaining buyers through that process. And good buyers are sophisticated, are going to come in and they're going to do their diligence. And if you're working with even larger companies that are going to have more people involved than maybe that are responding to some of their diligence inquiries. So it gets challenging to manage that. And a lot of times companies still do that with Excel, send a bunch of emails back and forth. 
and then put a bunch of data in a data room. Uh, that tends to be a pretty funky process. And what happens is it's the management teams ends up scrambling around to respond to all this stuff. And it becomes a whole nother job for them that ends up distracting them away from their business. And next thing you know, they're not meeting those quarterly goals and it's making a financial impact on the company, which even worst case could be terms to renegotiate the deal because the value has uh, not been portrayed in the growth level they expected. I was going to say, like, maybe give like an example. Like, so you have, let's say you got a company, you got three people. Explain like what the old antiquated process would be like. I mean, is it like, by the way, Keyson, here's a list of stuff that I need and here's a Dropbox folder. And then like, maybe just give a little bit of color behind that situation you just brought up. Yeah. So here's a, you know, we're selling a company. We're going to start off the process with this giant list of a hundred things that we're going to need just to start prepping the marketing material to take the company out to market, which is fine. I mean, some of that you're not compressed on time because you could take a week or you can take a month to put all that stuff together. And it's pretty tedious. You got to just follow the Excel sheet, put in a, a folder structure, put an index number and go back and forth. So pretty manual, but you can get at leisure. What happens is during the further along the process, and you know we got uh, Joe, the CFO, and Steve, the treasurer, who are putting all together this financial information. As they start getting buyers in and they're doing more diligence, uh, you're going to have to start answering these requests and they keep coming in. And they could be batches because on the buy side, if I'm a large organization, you know, we'll take uh, you know Walmart is whatever company, right? And they're going to have their different functional leads coming in and they're going to be uh, inter- their different functional leads from HR, legal. I, they're going to have their own diligence questions and their own list. So a lot of times these lists get compiled and they get sent over to that buyer, the representative of the buyer, and then that management team has to answer them. Now, if you're imagining running a competitive process with five <laughs> different competing bidders for this and they're each sending you 300 questions, you know, next thing you know, you got 500 questions and uh, requests for information that you're responding to. I don't know if I did the math right. It's like 1,500. But so <laughs> you know what I mean. It's, all, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, you're you're maximizing yourself out, and it, it becomes a very stressful process. Uh, then once you start getting further along, and you're familiar with this, where you sign your letter of intent, and then it even gets intense because now you're doing confirmatory diligence, which everybody's really doubling down to make sure things are what they need to be. They're identifying the risk in the transactions. And that's when you're getting a lot of intense response. And there's an expectation that the stuff gets responded to in a timely fashion to keep the process going. That's where you see a lot of this pressure that happens for that management team and why it becomes such a big distraction for them. Well, and yeah, I mean, uh, just... In the bigger the company, the more locations, the more division. I mean, like the more divisions, the more questions, and they're asking everything. It's funny when I when I've told people about this that haven't sold. I'm like, no, no, no. It's literally everything. <laughs> like there, there's not like, oh, we forgot this document. I mean, because everything, you know, everything that you don't have and like how long it takes. I, I think it has a direct correlation to the trust. I just did a podcast episode on trust. Um, as it relates to buying and selling the people, and, and like it just erodes that, which just erodes the price. Uh, so, yeah. like when you were going through this, Kizan, and you're like you started realizing how um, inefficient this was. So, what are the different things that you started seeing? Like you said, you know, you started reach, uh, seeing people come up with project management tools, and like what was the, you know, where did your kind of like passion behind this start? I mean, was it like okay, this is just inefficient, I need to fix it, or did you? We're sort of coming at it from like, you know, like maybe explain your evolution to the agile um, system in the, in the book that you brought uh, that you just wrote. It probably started off just being a nerd, Ryan, where I uh, always like nerded on the tech pieces of the company, building the website and things like that. And when I didn't find good solutions for our firm, I started building our own tools in house. And I remember building our own data, virtual data room back in 2005. Just because the vendors out there were charging an enormous amount and they're billing for every single page of document that you upload in their system. So I, I just started originally starting with the FTP site then evolved that into a, a data room. Uh, and then the, so some of those ideas were seeded from that experience. And then it, it evolved with this idea of developing it into project management software and taking that to market. 
Um, and then from there, it's just you go through a lot of iterations. I think we all like building anything. It's going to take longer and cost more than we expect. <laughs> so there's a, that learning curve, especially when it came to technology, building an in-house tool versus building something to take to market is two totally different things. It probably took us maybe two, three years to really figure out how security works and dial that in so that we can handle transaction for larger firms. So when you look at like the old way of the spreadsheets and doing the, you know, getting all these people involved, I mean, cause I mean, can't remember there was a woman that I was just uh, talking to. She spent almost half a million dollars on her on her sale and advisors, right? So if you just have one sale, you've got all your advisors in this deal room that are getting their fingers in and out of the the information. Then you've got maybe five, maybe more buyers, and then all of their advisors. I mean, it blows up fast. So how do you take like how did you like what would what should the process look like? I guess is my 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 question, and then. Walk us through the whole process from you know from the the prepping to the actual close and like how you can coordinate some of that stuff based on uh, based on your guys' philosophy. Sure. So I, I think a lot of this stuff, like the way we laid it out, is, the thing that I see a big lack of is a real definition of what an operating framework is because we just go pursue an M and A deal and we don't have a formal project management methodology in place. And that's where a lot of these friction points happen. So thinking of that early on is probably one of the the first and foremost things to do, which is in the book I wrote is focused on introducing a project management framework that really gets emphasizes responsiveness, collaboration, and continuous improvement. And that that's like the, the real root of it. But when we look at the process itself, when it starts off, we don't have a lot going on, right? You got two people that get together, uh, wherever it is, first class on a jet, and they make a deal. And when they make the deal, then things start coming together. You got the handshake deal and you start going through your series of diligence. And as you go through your diligence process, uh, you're going to have more and more people involved in that process. And then as you keep continuing through that, more and more people get involved. That's when you really need to be able to coordinate the people together and make sure you have a good flow of sharing that information, particularly when information is very confidential. And then as you go through this, uh, the goal of diligence is for the buyer to be able to identify the risk in transactions. And you got to have a team doing that that's collectively looking at the company and sharing their views so that they're able to connect the dots and identify the underlying risks. Otherwise, you have people work independently and they're going down checklists, looking for the obvious doomsday tomorrow type of risk. And then as well, they could discover opportunities in the company as well uh, while they're doing their diligence. And then for them, at the same time, you want to be able to plan, what are you going to do with this company after you close? What are the post-close value creation model? What what are we going to do for integration? And how are we going to ensure that goes smooth? Uh, and that's really, really important. I think that's one of the big fail points I've seen. And probably mm-hmm. more recently in the few years, you're seeing companies wise up to it. In the corporate environment, you're seeing less of a disconnect where traditionally there's two separate teams, a corp dev team that runs a process from sourcing through close and a separate team that runs a process from close through the integration stage. And now we're seeing that really converge together and become one team or somehow create that true partnership between those teams so that the integration lead can be involved as early as possible. And there's a lot of value they can create because they can actually help validate the value drivers of the deal, uh, which is another issue is a lot of times deals are done with the prediction of what's going to drive the value for paying the amount of the deal that they're going to do it on. Uh, and then we see that big M&A failure rate that's always 70%, 80%, depending on which big four report you're looking at. and p- that's what ends up happening. Companies just don't hit those target numbers. So for them to look at how, how you know how, how can what the, they miss those target numbers, but that person that's actually responsible for delivering it should be involved early enough to really help validate it. <laughs> right. right? It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It'd be like yeah, someone. It'd be like someone going out and trying to pick a date for you and then handing them off to you. Without you having any, any, you got, any and then tell you, you got to make it work. <laughs> yeah, like it's like an arranged marriage. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> right? I mean, so which 
I mean, you when you really think about it, how ridiculous it sounds because you know internally, I mean, you're, you're like you're trying to find out the systems, the people, the processes, the clients, and all this stuff that are going to make the purchase worth it, right? I mean, so <laughs> it just is crazy to me that that it, that it's actually like that. So, how, like, because you, you kind of you did a really good job just kind of walking through that process. Maybe we let, let's give your explanation of. Agile, maybe a little bit of background on it, and like some of the, the the functions of the operating system that you in the framework that you put together. Yeah, sure. Um, so when we look at agile, we're looking at basically a project management framework that emphasizes responding to changes. So an easy way to think about agile is adopting to what's actually happening as it occurs. And if you look at the traditional way of doing things, you tend to map everything out all up front and create this detailed plan. And mm-hmm. then you basically follow the plan, which works when you know all the steps are there and you know what the end state looks like and everything's very predictable. For example, building a house. We can blueprint it and we know we don't want to change our plans and, and we're pretty fixed on what we're building here. But the challenge, and just like in the software world, is that you're building things with uh, assumptions and then as you continue through your plan and start getting feedback from users, you need to change your requirements. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of fluctuations in, in your plan. M&A is very similar because when we start that deal, there's few people involved. But as we continue through diligence integration, more people get involved, more information comes in. And that means there's going to be new findings, issues, and things that come up. And that needs to be responded to. So that's probably the main fundamental difference when we look at Following an agile project management approach versus the traditional approach. Well, which is, I think you do a good job of explaining that too, because I mean, is there maybe for the listeners who are not uh, familiar with the agile um, framework, is, you know, other, is it based on principles, right? Because there's a certain amount of things that you want to get done, right? So there is, it, it's not a step by step, but there's a certain overall thesis of what you're trying to accomplish. So, like, how are you getting that feedback? And, um, maybe can you give an ex- explanation in the software world, and then also maybe an explanation in the M and A world? Because I think you know I've got some friends that own software companies, and it's like all of a sudden a feature. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like I think they 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 take like the core function of the code, and then they have different teams that are building stuff. Then they put it back together. They get feedback, and then so they're constantly having to change this stuff, but also communicate. You know, in a highly effective manner, because <laughs> because they're working on different parts of the of the whole. How maybe I don't know, maybe ex- re-explain what I said if I was off a little bit. But <laughs> well, uh, no, there, there's a couple of key points you're pointing out. I, I think when you talk about that process and the way you describe it, you're describing it to be very iterative, mm-hmm. where you're just able to continuously change things. So one of the real basic approaches to this is having this backlog, and I, I've done this and struggled managing a team, Ryan where my biggest challenge was just getting everybody focused on the highest priority task at all times. And I think anybody that's managed a team could relate to that, where no matter how big or small, but just making sure everybody's working on the highest priority task throughout the project. And I remember having the Excel sheets and you start tagging things as high priority. <laughs> Everything's high priority. Know, <laughs> Everything. yeah, half, the, half the sheet's high priority <laughs> and there's no clarity on this. And then it, it just becomes a big challenge, especially if your team's distributed. So when you, and one of the things I learned from Agile is the backlog approach, which you consolidate all those lists as much as you can into a single list, and you keep your tasks in a descending order of priority. So the most important items always on the top of the list, followed by the next and the next. And uh, this keeps that real level of clarity there in terms of what the priority stands. And then as you assign tasks to change a priority, you just simply reorder things, drag and drop it to the top if you need to escalate the priority or shift things down if you need to de-escalate it. And that's worked really, really well in terms of having everybody on the same page, looking at the priorities and the order they need to happen. Only on the flip side of that is it does add a little bit of extra overhead to periodically go through and groom that list because things do get shuffled around. So as long as one person's responsible or a couple of people are responsible to get together once a week or whatever it is, and just make sure there's that clear alignment on those priorities. But that I can see that with every team I've worked with since I learned that method has been highly effective in terms of managing priorities. So how does that relate to M&A then? Maybe can you give us a couple examples of how that works, the different maybe roles and then the different things that they're um, reprioritizing? Right. So 
during diligence integration, there's a bunch of tasks that happen, right? If we're going to get that same list of 300 requests, well, the truth of that request is there's probably about 10 to 15 things that really need to get done today. Mm-hmm. And it's the most important things to push the deal forward. You know, some of the other stuff can come at some point, And then there's probably a lot of stuff that doesn't even need to be answered because somebody just took it on a template and didn't really take the time to go through stuff. So when you can prioritize these items, now you can just focus on getting those 10 to 15 most important things that need to get done today, send those off, mm-hmm. and then focus on the next highest priority items. Uh, meanwhile, the other side can get those responses that they need to continue the process, and then they're able to actually respond back so that you're getting this shorter cycle to actually iterate faster on those key critical issues. Instead of waiting to answer 300 items, which may take five days, and then waiting for a bunch of responses to all Mm -hmm. come back, and then the poor guy at the desk is just getting an avalanche of work every time this correspondence happens, uh, in in between he has a bunch of dead time. So it's really creating a lot more efficiency by having these short cycles and a clear focus on what is the most important thing that needs to get done today. Well, and, and like, yeah, you're right. And if you think about all the different departments from HR to, to accounting, to uh, finance, to operations, to sales, to service, I mean, all these different departments, you know, core departments are going to have their own sets of checklists, like you said, which is kind of like that example in the software world where everybody's got their own, but then, you know, what, it, what are you, what are you seeing of, you know, of success when you, when you're talking about integration team being involved upfront as part of this. And then also who is like in a successful project like this, who's leading it, right? Cause I've seen problems where like, you know, maybe corporate says, Hey, we want to acquire this. And, you know, in public companies, it could be for shareholder reasons, you know, for private companies, it could be because, you know, they need to acquire talent, they need to acquire customers. So there becomes a main business reason for purchasing a business, right? And then there is the financial necessity to get a return on that. So there's the core, you know, foundational, uh, you know, purposes for the deal. But I see like, you know, in the situation when you have either a very few times there's buy side investment bankers, right? And if there are, they're either on, on staff, but you have the buyer's uh, team and then you get the seller's team. Who's responsible for this overall project, you know, to be managing something like this and who is compensated correctly to make sure that the v- different departments are doing what they need to be doing. I mean, I just... I'm I'm curious on like what you've seen that is you know what's worked and what hasn't worked. Yeah, traditionally they they do put uh, a head person for the deal. So in the corporate environment, their team may be led by VP of corporate development, but then there may be a director that's specifically leading that deal. And then uh, there is some ch- some challenges in terms of comp and and incentives around it, which I think is a big challenge because a lot of times they're not incentivized after the close. It's everything's tied to a structure to the close. The worst structures I've seen are tied to revenues on doing the transaction. <laughs> but <laughs> who cares about profit? And, yeah, I mean, we were just buying revenues, and, and that that incentivizes actually doing the wrong type of deals. So that that is a big challenge because ultimately you want to keep them. And again, I think this is a big trending thing that's happening now, where now it's it's those functions are combining together between corp dev integration, and you're seeing more people on the corp dev side involved throughout the transaction so that they're continuing through post-close to stick with the deal so that it's not one of those things where they just pass it off and, and you know, the shit's on the next person. Uh, they, they do got to take ownership of that plan that they created in the investment thesis to make sure it's carried out. But I think that's, that's a couple things that uh, are, are changing and need to change. What are some of the things that people are doing to successfully get the integration team up front and be looking at stuff? You know, I mean, what are and what are the things that they're looking at? Getting them involved early, the best you can. I think we've seen this old culture of keeping them in the dark and up until a letter of intent is signed. And I understand from the corp dev's view, where or you know, or whoever's leading that corp dev role, that you don't want to waste resources. You don't want to say, hey, I'm going to start getting these people early, but their time is costing money. And if this deal doesn't go through, I'm not sure if I go, it's going to go through or not. I don't have that level of certainty yet. So I'm going to refrain from bringing anybody integration side. But then we talked about earlier, if you can at least bring 
somebody on the leadership of integration, get them involved earlier, there's a lot of value in having them validate the actual value drivers early. Example is this. On my podcast, I interviewed John DeRusso from Cisco, who's one of the integration directors. And his answer when I asked him when he got involved in the deal caught me off guard because what he told me was that he gets involved before the corporate dev team has the first conversation with the management team of the target company, which is like far extreme on the other side that I've ever heard from anybody in integration. And his specific reason why was that as they're coming up with their investment thesis and determining the value drivers of the deal, he wants to be involved to be able to make sure that those are things that he can actually deliver on. Interesting. Well, yeah, because like I'm just trying to think like how do you how do you then what have you seen like maybe an example that he gave to prove that the acquisition was worth it? I mean, is there is there certain things you know when you're looking at the integration team and understanding those value drivers? I mean, are there consistent value drivers? Or are there consistent things that people are looking at? And how do you actually quantify whether the deal has successfully been integrated? I guess it depends on each company, right? Because what are they buying the company for? Like, what is that specific value driver? Are they buying for the product? Are they buying uh, the technology, the people? Is it the market that they're looking to tap into? Is it uh, more around purely consolidation in their industry or tapping into new geographies? So I, I think that when they really clarify that, which is really important, it's, it's answering the why. Why, mm-hmm. why are we doing this deal and crystallizing that and creating that level of clarity, but making sure that continues throughout the deal? Because we, we talked about when we first started this, it's all these deals start off with this great vision of innovation. And by the time we hit day one, it's a big chaotic scramble and there's a lot of frustration, <laughs> confusion, and things are blowing up. Uh, and that, that's the whole thing. Along with that story, you know, there, there's the process piece that gets out of whack. A lot of times that whole big picture vision gets lost as well. And everybody's caught up in doing a bunch of tactical crap instead of focusing on those real strategic value-add activities that align and drive towards that big picture goal. How, how are you taking like in this approach and I don't know if you are or not, but like taking all the the projects in due diligence and the different priorities and tasks and then migrating those into ongoing project management once the deal is closed, like actually implementing, you know, my, you know, system transitions or migrations or people and like how, like how can you, like, do you have to restart all those projects or are you able to take the discovery that's been done in due diligence and then actually make those into integration projects post-closing? No, you're pointing out a huge problem I've seen that when you have those separate teams, there tends to be this big knowledge chasm between diligence, the corp dev team, and integration. And that ends up leading to a bunch of rework. And you're handicapped because now you have to relearn a lot of things because you didn't get this knowledge ahead of time. And the better way to fundamentally think about integration as an extension of diligence. So they really should be a parallel process to plan your integration at the same time you're doing diligence, which is why it makes sense to have the integration leaders do the diligence and develop that integration plan. Because I just had somebody ask on our website chat the other day for integration template. And the integration templates out there are crap because they're very, very basic things that just give you a sense of what what to plan for. But the reality is, you need to create a very tailored plan. And that, that a lot of the information can come from diligence as you're learning about their different systems and processes and things of that sort, because it's all those little details is what you're going to end up having to think about for your integration and plan around. So making sure that you're doing that in parallel with diligence and having it as a full-on extension of diligence to go right into integration so it's one continuous process and not looked at as separate stages. So what I find super interesting, Kisan, is like like what you just said and all this just makes so much common sense. But like I mean, I'm curious with your with your tenure in, in this space and especially in the bigger companies, like is it just because comp plans are so effed up that like this doesn't happen because it's so it, like, it's just ridiculous to me because I literally on the front cover, of the twin cities business journal this last week, it was, uh, you know, cause Minnesota's got 17 public companies and how much debt they've acquired doing deals. And like, 
I, I look at that and I go, well, you have a bunch of corporate people that are, you know, comped on like, like little teeny silos of all this stuff. And it's all like, you know, you have a lot of shenanigans getting played with the share price and like, because, you know, debt's cheaper than equity and all these different things. And you go like, does anybody really get comped or care about making any of this stuff work? I mean, it's, it's just, it's like so mind boggling to me when you realize that <laughs> like so few people are comped on the whole thing that it like to have these companies that are running on spreadsheets and get paid to just get the deal done is just, I don't know. I, I just kind of get like baffled by it. Economics are different when you're public. I, I'm still learning it because as a private company, you know what's going on and you're, you're accountable for those numbers because you're thinking in term financially. Well, you have as to. A, <laughs> you, you do. Have. Because at the end of the day, that's ideally what you're going to sell on. Uh, and you do the math and, and build around that. And, and you are, especially if you're a private owner, I mean, you're really determined to create that value and, and focus on it. When you're a public company, a lot of them evolve into these M&A machines where the integration in that process and the strategy and aligning all this stuff together after deals get done doesn't matter as much because it's just get the deal done and get a, a press release out there and get a bump in our market cap. And it just becomes more about doing the deals and it's just that the machine for doing the deals and just their perception of the market, as long as that market cap keeps growing, you know, that triggers some growth on, on the share value as well. So that, that it's just different. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not reality. I mean, like, I, you, I think that's where you see a lot looser accountability when it comes to the way they're integrating companies on the public side. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And like, and then not only the, that, but the shenanigans that they, I've, I've learned about what they play once they close a deal of like how they restructure things and they can write the restructuring off. <laughs> Just like, I don't know. I mean, it, like you said, it becomes more about getting the deal done and versus actually making sure there's long-term value creation. So the, you know, in the private sector, what, like, where do you, where do you mean uh, mainly play? Is it pri- private or public? We probably do more public than private. I would say it's probably about 40% private, 60% public. Okay. And so what are the main differences you see between the two as you're, as you're explaining your methodology? When we work with private companies, a lot of times it's on the sell side. We're working with investment banks that are referring us in. And I think the challenge is the investment banking community, just to be frank, is a little bit more behind in terms of adopting today's techniques and trends. Uh, alongside with the consultants and law firms. Whereas when we work with corporations that are public, uh, they're typically on the buy side and they're doing several acquisitions throughout the year where that leadership is at least incentivized to develop a process or evolve a process. Whereas somebody that's selling a company, it's it's a one-time event. And there isn't this strong alignment to facilitate a, a higher level of efficiency on the sell side that I've personally seen. Whereas on the buy side, when you're doing multiple transactions, and in that case, you're integrating the 18 companies over, over a year span, you know, ideally, you have more at stake and you do want to do things to make them integrate better. So you're at least incentivized to look at some things and figure out, hey, what, what are some better ways that we can make this a smoother transaction? Because somebody in that process is hurting. Right. Uh, that's deal with because somebody gets blamed when things go wrong. <laughs> um, so you you know what I mean. There there's that that clarity where hey we keep doing these deals we can't keep doing them wrong we got to do something better. So a lot of our clients are usually publicly traded. They're one to ten billion market cap companies that are occasional acquirers becoming frequent acquirers, and then they're enduring that pain when they start scaling out their process. Well, what I find interesting um, based on some of the things that you said is. You know, if you think about the sell side of investment bankers, and this this applies honestly from every end of the marketplace, whether it's down to the brokers all the way up to the big public investment bankers that you're talking about. On the sell side, if you're an investment banker, you know, like in the I think in the mid market, people so yeah, it's a it's a good thing if one banker does like three to five deals, you know, and that's a lot for one banker. And then so depending on the shop and like how big they are, you'd have to train each seller 
each time on an agile process like this, right? Because they've never done it. They don't even know what due diligence is if they haven't been listening to a show like this or been researching. So like the amount of pain that they have to go through to just educate the seller, it's like, okay, is it worth it or is it not? Because I'm never going to work with these people again, right? There's no long-term accountability. So just get the deal done and they get paid to get the deal done. And like what, I, what I've always said, Keysan, is that like the seller, I, I think people are shocked how little, like how, how many corners are cut from an owner's perspective. Like if you think about it, a privately held business owner has not been able to cut corners ever, right? Because the market tells them that they can't. <laughs> Versus when they go to a process like that, if, like this, if they're not understanding this, then they're, they, I think they'd be shocked if what they would probably see compared to like, you know, they haven't had the ability to compare multiple investment bankers across each other because they haven't experienced multiple, right? And uh, I interviewed this one guy who is in a large private equity firm and he sold, but now he owns a, he owns a, a PE firm. But he said, you know what? If you're the seller, you should literally do reverse due diligence on the buyer because you should be asking them what they're going to do to integrate. And I think people would be shocked at how few people actually knew what they were going to do post-closing. I, I think that's becoming more of a consideration because I am seeing that trend changing where founder owners are, are definitely more attached to the business where especially they developed it and they, they actually do care about the team and what their future looks like. So I, I'm seeing more of that as consideration when evaluating different potential buyers. Uh, to jump back on the banking side of it, I don't think the, the problem is with the taking the time to, to work with each person and show them agile stuff. I, I just think part of it's the, the culture and the incentivizing the bankers to create the efficiency. And the, the reason I probably didn't clarify this the first time is when they're doing a deal, they're usually comped on the success of the deal, right? Which is common. And when you're looking at like a mid-market bank, uh, any of your, uh, you know, the KPMG Corp Finance or William Blair, uh, Baird, those type of banks, what happens is they're getting comped off that overall deal structure. And there's not like that bottom line incentive around the net margins. Mm-hmm. So the problem I see in the, the bottom line is it's the associates and the VPs that are not trained on project management. You know, these kids go to Ivory League schools, they go to the top institutions, they come out, they get trained on all the financial modeling, uh, and they're responsible to manage complex M&A transaction that they haven't spent a single day getting trained on any formal project management methodology. That That's a problem I see in the industry. And it's partly because of the culture and partly because the guys that run the deal teams aren't financially incentivized to improve that because they get paid on the gross sales. So they're sales folks that run around looking for engagements because that's what they're going to get paid on. None of the, the efficiencies on the other side, unless they own the firm, matter to them. So they're not really incentivized to drive those efficiencies. If that yeah, that's super interesting. And no, yeah, you're very right. I mean, like, if you, yeah, I, I'd be curious on how many people actually been trained on project management. And if you think about it, if you go straight into investment banking, you don't have any working experience working on big teams to accomplish big projects, right? I mean, it's just, you're just essentially just trained on how to ask questions and not care about the system, right? I mean, like, interesting. I, you know, I just to be fair, I should rip on the the consultants a little bit. I uh, <laughs> remember I remember pitching to one of the consultants and showing them our model and and how it could drive so much efficiency in the M and A process and save hundreds, if not thousands, of hours. Uh, and <laughs> he goes through and says, "I love this. I see how it works. I have one problem with it. I bill for those inefficient hours." <laughs> Isn't so, that I know? I I get I have a quota. You know, he told me I have a quota I have to meet every year, and whatever it is, three million, five millions of services he has to sell, that's going to count against me. I mean, doesn't that just make you infuriated? <laughs> right, that's true. And I, you know, things are changing, right? Because you're seeing a model of more, and the law firm, same thing. I had a law firm where um, the 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 legal counsel lead told me they spent almost thirty percent of their time looking for documents. I was like, <laughs> well, wouldn't it be great to like? remove 80% of that. It was like, well, no, because I bill for that. 
It's so funny, Kisan, as I was at, like a couple of years ago, as we were evolving our business model, we, you know, we were doing due diligence and stuff like that, you know, regardless of what they wanted to sell. And then we realized that the, you know, sellers don't necessarily care about that as much unless they're like fairly close. And we were trying to get referrals from CPAs and attorneys and stuff like that. And they were like, well, that just eats into our margin. I'm like, I can't believe you're saying that you need a $350 an hour and I'm in Minnesota, right? <laughs> or it could be more, looking for documents. Like, that's insane. <laughs> and like, they're holding on to it close to the vest because of their incentives. Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, people aren't always out for the best interest. So what is it like, you know, as you're looking at this, what would be your ideal, like, what's your, what's your big why? What's your big ideal outcome that you want to change? Like, what, what would, like, mean success to you? Of like, okay, like, hey, this is working and things are changing. I think evolving the industry. We, we've seen this in the software world because the way their teams were even structured, they'd always have all the back-end programmers together and the front-end programmers and another team design, QA, so forth. And it was highly inefficient. It was very expensive and just the results were terrible. And what it's evolved with Agile is really, and I really want to emphasize this, it's around the mindset to be very change-oriented and developing these collaborative environments where you have much smaller cross-functional teams. Now you had each of those little parts, your back-end, front-end, and they're all working together. And uh, their small team are able to go off and develop their own software feature. And now that process has become highly efficient where it's so easy to start a tech company now. It's very, you can build a great product. It doesn't cost that much. And it's just evolved that, that whole nature of software development, which is propelling a lot of the technology that we see today. And I, I think MA is just so far behind that it's 2020 and these billion dollar deals are still getting done in Excel. They're not following a formal project management approach. And there's things that the software world we can learn from and the software world's even learned from lean manufacturing and adopted a lot of their techniques in that model. And if you look at the greatest innovation between manufacturing and software development, it was all around how they reinvented their process. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity with M&A because we're talking about the largest expenditure a company will ever make is acquiring another company. So if we look at that, I mean, there's huge opportunity to drive efficiencies if we're spending five plus percent and a ton of time and we're seeing these disastrous results during integration without this proper level alignment. The idea starts off good. It sounds like we had a great plan and things are going to be beautiful afterwards, but then uh, it doesn't end up working that way. So I think there's just tons of opportunity to take these M&A events, which often turn into value destruction events and realign them so that not only there's better outcomes, but there's also uh, happier people along with it too. And what I find is interesting because I haven't spent a ton of time in public companies. Um, like I think, you know, a lot of the listeners being probably, probably from the, the, you know, the privately held sector here is like, you have to be using these tools, right? Cause you, you have to be so competitive and nimble in order to continue to grow and evolve. I, I'd be, I bet you a lot of people would be shocked on how inefficient bigger companies are because it's so hard to change. Um, some small example is I heard that, um, you know, when there was when the private equity firm bought some country here in town an airline, right. And literally an airline, they were like the, I talked to some people behind the scenes and they're like, it was run on spreadsheets. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I mean, so like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just because it's the bigger companies and people don't have, I mean, it's just harder to adopt new systems or like, cause I think, Sometimes it seems like a faraway story because people in the lower market are, you know, it's easier to pick up a tool that has been developed in the last couple of years because you just make the decision. You just start doing it yourself. You got a really good point. It's hard to get people to change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, change is really hard and people like, I mean, people hate it depending on where they're coming from because it's tribal knowledge and uh, it's job protection. Now, now, so this is interesting because we can share some thoughts on this because I, I know you're a change-oriented person in terms of your goals as well. And um, the one thing I've learned is the only way people will change is if you give them a compelling reason to change. And my approach on that has been focused on the discovery and understanding of their pain points and challenges and to really 
get to that level where you can empathize with them and, and make a person feel felt about their pain points and challenges. So when I work with companies, the first thing I do is map out their process because I want to understand how is your team set up? Where's corp dev? Who do they report to? Where's integration? How are they talking to each other? And then from there is to identify the key personas. And once I identify the key personas, ideally, I like to do one-on-one conversations and have more of a qualitative interview to understand their pain points and challenges. And it's like the, the cliche, ask why five times to start getting to the root causes of things. Mm-hmm. And then from there, bring everybody together. Bring all the different personas together because they're working together as a team, whether they're on a single team or spread across teams, and have them in a roundtable setting and just bring up those problems because it's all, it always becomes an eye-opener. People don't see or take the time to understand the other person's problems. Uh, and then once you do this, people start understanding, wow, that one thing I'm doing that's what I think is right is actually causing a lot of harm and actually it uh, avalanches on as the process continues. Uh, so getting them to realize that that's probably the first big step in, in invoking that change is uh, by identifying what, what the real compelling reason is. Uh, and then from there, following the agile way is just prioritize it so you know what is the biggest challenge you're looking to solve and put that in descending order. And then you can almost naturally start coming up with solutions for, for it and then prioritize the solutions you want to implement. And then from there, Take that, whether it's techniques, tools, whatever it be, uh, and start introducing it in your kickoff checklist. Because usually there's a checklist when you kick off these deals to start introducing to the team of the process and the goals, uh, but incorporate it there just to get everybody on the same page early. And it could be the folks that may be part-time in the deal, like we mentioned, some of those management teams, it's going to be a one-off process, but they can at least get familiar with what's going to happen in this one deal. But um, I, I think that's like the key thing is really honing in and getting everybody to understand why that reason is there to, to make this change. So, you know, with your resources, your podcast, your book and stuff like that, you know, given the fact that you've got a lot of stakeholders, right? You've got the seller, you got the buyer, you got the different advisors. You know, if, if someone that's listening to this and you know what, I want to make the art, I want to streamline our acquisition process or I want to actually learn about this before I end up selling because I, I think the only way to take ownership and make sure that this happens is you have to learn it and then you have to, you know, give get other people on board. What are the what are some of the resources and tools that you've got out there, and where can people find you? That's uh, good stuff. I well, I, one I do a podcast called M and A Science, so that's always fun because I think it's really important for your audience, particularly, especially if they're more on the sell side, is to get a perspective on the buy side. So I do interview a lot of the corporate development practitioners. And it does give a very good view on the buy side. I, I like interviewing people on the integration side as well to get their perspective. So I, I think that's definitely helpful. In terms of learning about project management, I, I did publish the book Agile M&A. And we have a new website called agilema.com, which we publish a lot of free tools and templates. And I'm now creating an advisor directory. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, to get like the more of the, the project management. They're probably a little more geared towards the, the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we uh, have a tool called DealRoom, which is DealRoom.net. And that's a project management tool that we provide for both sellers and buyers. I love it. And uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, obviously, give a bunch of those if someone wanted to know more about you and uh, one of those products. Yeah, I'm available by email. Probably the best way to get a hold of me is Kisan, spelled K-I-S-O-N, at Agile, A-G-I-L-E-M-A.com. Kisan, this has been a blast, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And my big takeaway for you is that if you're a seller or a buyer, you're probably very excited about the transaction. Seller, you're looking forward to some money, reducing responsibility and getting some chips off the table. As a buyer, you're looking forward to propelling your company and your professional career into the next level through the infrastructure or the clients or the rate of return that you're going to get on the sale. But the reality is, this is where the rubber hits the road. You have to understand how to integrate effectively and make the uh, pre-due diligence effective and the post-due diligence integration effective to make everybody win. Investors, the employees, the customers, the seller who is proud and happy about how it went, and then the buyer who is responsible for everything post-closing. 
figure out a process, how to do it effectively, how everybody can communicate, and then have a project lead that's responsible for managing the entire process and then adopt something like this agile M&A so that way you can get what you want. If you want to understand more about growing the value of your company with the end in mind on the five, based on our five principles, check out one of our two-day boot camps. There's a bunch more coming up. Go to arcona.io where you'll see a list of all the boot camps coming up and our agenda. And if you want uh, to reach out to me and you got questions about the agenda, what you're going to walk away with, happy to chat with you. And then again, if you got any feedback on the podcast title rename to Intentional Growth, Grow the value of your business with the end in mind. I'd love to hear it. But with that being said, I will see you next week.